Charlie Harp, and this is the Infomonster Podcast. Today on the Infomonster Podcast, I have with me Drew Ivan, the Chief Strategy Officer at Lineate, uh, and we're going to talk about one of my favorite topics, interoperability. But before we get started, Drew, why don't you uh, give the folks at home a little introduction? Sure. Thanks, Charlie. Um, yeah, I'm Drew Ivan, the Chief Strategy Officer at Lineate, and um, I've been in the space for quite a long time. Uh, Lineate was formed by merging a couple of different companies, some of which um, you know have a, a longer legacy. Uh, the products that we've uh, we've pulled together have been in the market for about 20 years. So um, I got into healthcare interoperability in about 2008. Um, although I was was dabbling in it uh, prior to that, so uh, pretty long history with healthcare interoperability, which turns out to be an asset. Uh, having seen where we came from and the changes that happened over time, it turns out to be super useful for helping plot a course for where we're going and what the new trends will be coming up. So um, I'm pulling from all of that uh, experience to uh, figure out how to um, pilot uh, the company. And the product uh, toward where where we want to uh, where we want to land in a few years here. It's uh, it's kind of a dubious honor, for folks like you and I that have been in the field for oh a, a number of years dealing with this problem. You know, when when I think about interoperability, and I talk about it from time to time with folks, and just to kind of do a primer for people that aren't uh, steeped in interoperability, interoperability is really allowing two entities to share information in a meaningful way, be able to exchange information and share it. And typically we think about interoperability as three different components. I tend to think of it as four, but we'll start with the main three, which are physical interoperability, which is taking the data and moving it from one place to another. Um, Syntactic interoperability, which is being able to package the data in a way and unpackage the, the data in a way where you can make use of the data in the package. And then semantic interoperability, which is being able to take the things that you've removed from the package and and leverage them in the receiving environment. But when you and I were talking in preparation for the podcast group, you talked about some other aspects of interoperability that I thought were really fascinating. Do you want to share that? Yeah. And um, maybe I'll start from where where you left off on that that three-part model. Um, the, the thing that strikes me about it is physical interoperability used to be a big deal. Um, you know, it, it used to be not an obvious uh, answer of how you were going to, uh, you know, actually connect two computer systems together because uh, you were lucky if you had a network within your company, let alone um, networks that could connect to um, other organizations. So um, we, we tend not to think about physical connectivity that much anymore. Um, other than you know what types of security are you using um, or or encryption or whatever, but uh, you know the there there was a time when when it was unclear you know what what method you would use to physically move the bytes from point A to point B. Um, my company focuses mostly on the syntactic interoperability. We are experts at the uh, technical and healthcare uh, formats that are in current use today, and we're good at mapping between them. Um, and then I think your company is more involved in the semantic interoperability, which is, uh, I think of it as applying meaning to that uh, structured data that we're moving back and forth. Uh, within the syntactic uh, uh, interoperability where we focus, um, I also break it down another way, which is to think about 
uh, interoperability within an organization. Um, and for us, this often means a hospital connecting their internal systems together with traditional HL7 version two messages. So they're connecting their EMR to their registration system and their billing system and so forth. Um, and that's actually where uh, quite a lot of activity happened for the first um, you know, 15 years of, of our product's life, life cycle was, was solving that problem. Um, more recently, we've been interested in what I call cross-organizational interoperability, and that's what it sounds like. It's moving data between two different organizations. So it could be from one hospital to another, from a provider organization to a payer, a provider to public health. Um, any kind of interchange between organizations uh, looks different than the internal integration, and it's because um, different data standards are in use. Uh, and you know different um, security models need to be used as well if you're uh, operating across different networks. Uh, there's also data governance issues, which um, are are less of a factor when everything's happening within a single organization. Uh, and then the third piece that I think about is uh, device integration, and that's sort of a subset of organizational integration. Uh, but it's moving data from devices that are at the patient's bedside into the hospital network so it can be consumed by, let's say, the electronic medical record. Um, so you, you have kind of this three-layer cake of data originating uh, near the patient on the device, moving into the organization's uh, internal interoperability, and then potentially moving across organizations. And the reason we break it down into those different categories is because um, there's different assumptions that you have going into conversations about each of them. And so for us, it's beneficial to establish, you know, what layer of interoperability are we talking about when we start a conversation so that we're not talking uh, with different assumptions than the listener is bringing to the conversation. Uh, but fortunately for us, a lot of the the background is the same. A lot of the standards are the same. A lot of the uh, connectivity issues are the same. And so it means that our tools are applicable across all three of those scenarios. Don't you think there's also kind of a different notion of trust? It's interesting when you look at, obviously, the information coming out of a device in an organization, there's a high level of trust. That information must be something we take in and we must use it. I think when you look at, at interfaces, that go, you know, let's call it intra-enterprise, where you're going from the ED to the hospital, um, from the operating room to, to, you know, the inpatient setting. I think there's also a high level of trust. So the information, it's almost like it's, it flows more freely. I think my experience is when you look at uh, the cross-organization sharing of data, whether you're getting data from a health information exchange, or you're getting data directly from another exchange partner, there tends to be, unless it's like a reference lab, there tends to be some reluctance to just carte blanche, let it flow into your system. Do you see that as well? Yeah, I think that's right. I think um, doctors are more trusting of data that originated either within their organization or like you say, uh, from a reference lab, which is sort of an extension of their organization. It's, it's work for hire that they, uh, that they ordered. They treat uh, data coming into the organization from other organizations um, with a lower degree of, of trust. You know, it's, it's not always because uh, they, <laughs> they think the doctors over at that other hospital don't know what they're doing. Uh, it's because, you know, they don't know the ne necessarily the context that the patient was seen there. So if they get a visit summary note um, about a, a specialist referral, for example, 
um, unless they know exactly why that referral was done, they they may not uh, they may not have the complete picture of what was going on with that encounter. And so um, they treat it as um, informational, but um, I, I don't even want to say less reliable. But but they um, they they would think of it as as something that's useful to know, but maybe um, you know it has different provenance, and so they they treat it a little bit differently. Um, there's a fourth kind of interoperability that we're starting to see creep into the scene, which is um, patient interoperability. Uh, patients are starting to have either um, medical grade devices sent home with them, or they have uh, consumer devices like um, you know, Bluetooth scales and blood pressure monitors. They're starting to get you know, just about as good as uh, the clinical devices. So they're bringing this data with them to their, uh, to their doctors. And that's another place where uh, where trust comes into play, because um, with data that's collected outside of the clinician's supervision, they don't necessarily know if uh, it was uh, collected correctly. Like, especially if you think of a, a blood pressure reading, uh, when the doctor does it, they do it in a controlled way with the patient sitting in a certain position and um, and so forth. But uh, if it was done at home uh, by a non-specialist, they don't know if it was collected quite the same way. So uh, that's a place where um, I think trust is an even bigger issue because increasingly data is generated outside of a clinical setting. And if it's going to be trusted at a lower level, then um, we have to question how we want to incorporate that into, into the care process. I think that's one of the things when it comes to interoperability that we sell, we, we don't really focus a lot of energy on, at least I haven't seen it. And that is we can share information, um, but whether or not that information kind of makes its way into the data, uh, as, there's a lot of factors that could impede it, could be barriers to that. One of the things, for example, is you see a lot of these initiatives coming out of Silicon Valley where people are doing more and more where they're putting the patient's record on a device like their phone. Mm-hmm. And, um, you, you would think that at some point patients uh, are going to be able to go in and say and review their medical record and possibly correct it or adjust it on their phone. And I'd be curious to think, I, mean, I know that happens probably some to some level with patient portals today, but I would think that also might cause some concern when people are trying to decide whether or not they let patient created data go into their official medical record or not without some kind of vetting. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I mean, the reality is that that patient reported data is already in the medical record because when the patient comes in and says, you know, I, I have a, a backache that 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 gets transcribed into the medical record by uh, by someone at, at the doctor's office, usually verbatim. So uh, some of that information is already there in kind of a, a very manual interoperability way. But what you're talking about is interoperability at scale. Um, as the consumers are generating tons of data from their fitness devices and their in-home um, devices, uh, how much of that is relevant? How, how much of it, um, you know, it's not just a trust issue, but it's like a, a volume issue. If, if I have a blood pressure reading from every single day, um, does my doctor care about, you know, every single data point, he's certainly not going to review them one by one. Um, does it make sense to average them? Is that even valid? I don't, I, I don't know, but, um, some way of managing this increasing flow of data is going to be, um, important if, if we're going to, uh, hope to incorporate it in any way into a, a patient's, um, care plan.
Well, I think there's also um, this kind of notion of you have all this data, you have you know this combination of, of real-time telemetry coming off of devices, consumer devices, medical devices. You have all this data from the different places, the different types of encounters that patients are having in healthcare. Um, but the other type of data that I still think as an industry we structured it in our operate with is the unstructured data. So you have all these these clinical notes, these procedure notes, all these things that are not designed in a way that um, are intended for uh, for software to ingest and process. And it, I think it still represents between 60 and 80 percent of what we know about patients in healthcare. So I think that's going to be another challenge we have to deal with um, over time until people until we either figure out ambient healthcare or we figure out how to do a better job of, of doing a more organic clinical documentation process that results in structured data. Yeah, it's it's tricky because um, when you use a specialist like a radiologist uh, or a pathologist to interpret um, a finding, they put a lot of detail into the English language description of what they found. And that nuance is what's really important to uh, the phys physicians that are treating a uh, patient. Unfortunately, um, <laughs> there's, there's little space for nuance in, uh, in structured data. Uh, because it's structured and it's not as flexible, it, uh, it needs to discard some of the information. It discards the nuance and you end up with a description of a tumor in structured data that might describe, uh, you know, the size or, or, or the appearance, but, um, you know, you lose quite a lot of the impressions that the, um, that, that came through the unstructured report. And I mean, there's, there's ways of trying to recapture some of that. There's natural language processing that, that makes an attempt to go through, um, a block of text and mark it up with, uh, with data that can then turn into structure. But, at the end of the day, you're losing something by putting it into a database. And uh, I feel like that's inevitable. Um, you know, the best you can do is capture as much as possible and keep the text in its original format so that if a human needs to read it and act upon it, they have, you know, what was actually written in the first place. Uh, but that's the problem, right? I mean, artificial intelligence can't, can't do a great job of parsing out that that uh, that detail that's in the clinical note. And so it relies on the structured data to do its work. Yeah, and I think the trick is if you're dealing with unstructured data, you're right, there's a, there's a lot of specificity that you're gonna lose if you turn that into structured data because terminologies themselves being pre-coordinated can only handle things they anticipate, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, the, I think the, the trick there is to boil out the, the big pieces you know, so to, to be able to know that the patient has an ejection fraction or to be able to know of 25% or to know that they're a diabetic, that maybe someone didn't put in the structured data. Because the challenge I think we have in healthcare, the reason we interoperate is because we want to have a complete picture. We want to know everything we can know so that when we use analytics or, or AI or machine learning, you know, we, we've got all the data that's necessary to make the right decisions. And and I think that's one of the reasons why when you look at the industry and some of the struggles we've had applying some of these more advanced analytical machines to looking at healthcare data, the output is only as good as the input. And I think that's why we still kind of endeavor to improve the quality of the things that we're feeding into those types of mechanisms. One of the other things that you and I talked about kind of in the pre-call was um, 
some of the changes in the industry as to how we're interoperating. Because historically, you know, <clears throat> back in my day at uh, at Smith Klein, I was building these ASTM interfaces, which kind of evolved into HL7. But I think now we're seeing a lot of shifting in, and not just, you know, we have these types of interoperability, we have the roles of interoperability, but we also now have these different mechanisms for sharing information. You wanna chat about that for a minute? Yeah, and, and this is where it's helpful to have been around the industry a long time. Sort of the, the first generation of healthcare interoperability was HL7 messages, um, which they did a great job of what they were intended for, which is um, establishing a standard for systems to communicate with one another in a way that was easy on the sending system. Uh, in other words, if if the sending system had something to say, it said it and it would put it out there on the wire and anybody who needed to know about it had to be listening in order to receive that message because 10 minutes from now, that data is gone. It's, it's, it's uh, ephemeral. And, uh, and the other thing is, if, um, if it's important for that message to get to its destination, there needs to be queuing mechanisms in between, uh, store and forward mechanisms. So it really is um, a, a standard that's, uh, I, I see two uh, main things about HL7 that are important. One is this emphasis on the convenience of the sending system. The other is um, that the messages that are sent are triggered by events in the real world. So for example, if a patient is admitted to the hospital, that, that, that admission triggers an admission message in this, uh, this interoperability ecosystem that the, the, the system you register the patient in sends this message to anyone else who, who might be interested. And you know that got us really far. That started in the uh, early 90s and it's still in use today. And I forecast that it'll be in use forever because that model, that, that event-based model of healthcare is too useful to discard and uh, we don't have a replacement for it. So even as other forms of interoperability came along, uh, HL7 v2 continued to live side by side with it. And uh, sort of the second generation of interoperability that came along was document-based interoperability. And this coincided with the rise of cross-organizational interoperability because when you're communicating with another organization about a patient, oftentimes you wanna send a patient summary or the complete patient record from one organization to another. And so, packaging up that data as a document in CCD or later in CCDA format uh, makes a lot of sense. It's a structured document that can encapsulate everything you need to know about the patient uh, and, and send it to a, a destination. And you know this, this sort of has the opposite problem of the HL7 messages. The HL7 messages are quite granular in terms of what they're talking about, whereas the CCD documents are extremely large. Uh, they, they have a ton of data. And, uh, you know, they, they talk about everything to do with the patient. And, um, and, and so you have both extremes right there. Um, and then the current generation of interoperability is based around fire resources, which in that sense, it sort of strikes a balance between uh, too small and too large. The, the resources are intended to be useful sized chunks of data about uh, a patient that can be transferred individually. So it's, uh, it's a little bit in between, but um, you know, it doesn't use the event model. It uses sort of a request response model uh, primarily, um, which puts the onus on the, uh, on the consuming system instead of the sender being able to send at their convenience 
the consumer uh, is able to ask for the information on demand at the consumer's convenience, which puts a little more burden on the the server or the, the the source of the data because they have to be always ready to receive these inbound requests and service them, uh, whether they're getting one at a time or a hundred at a time. That's an excellent point. I think that one of the misnomers that I hear from folks in uh, in healthcare from time to time is that fire is like everything, and I think you make an excellent point that you know HL seven is a is a very specific type of message it can be as granular as it has to be or it can be more expansive you you can send a patient summary with hl7 if you wanted to based on a trigger um i think that uh ccda i mean when ccda first came out the ccd came out there were there were these competing standards there was a little bit of controversy around that um and we ended up with what we have today which is the ccd or the ccda which is a little text heavy, um, HL7, you know, nothing wrong with a good old delimiter. It's nice and, you know, parsimonious, you, you, you get it. It, it, all of these standards, and I don't know if, if fire is going to fall into the same trap, but you know, the whole idea of, if you've seen one format, you've seen one format, I think there's still enough variability, um, especially when it comes down to the, the, the vocabularies. There, there is no like magical answer to the question of how do I exchange data? I think in some ways, because people gravitate towards, well, why aren't we doing this with fire? I don't know. When you look at the stuff that we're doing with fire casting and, and all the other things that are moving down, do you think that fire will supplement the CCDA or replace it? Do you think that uh, you've already kind of stated what you thought about HL7? And I agree with you that I think HL7, it's a mature, relatively mature thing. I don't know that we need to, to do a bunch of rework to replace it with, with some kind of fire mechanism, but what are your thoughts on fire and, and CCDAs? Yeah, yeah, good question. Um, <laughs> the easy answer is it's too soon to tell. Um, the other easy answer is the one that I've been giving, which is uh, all three generations of standards will continue to live in perpetuity. Um, but you're right, I mean, um, Fire has a shot at replacing CCDA uh, as uh, as the standard uh, for trans- transferring documents because you can assemble uh, much more interesting documents uh, in Fire uh, versus CCDA, which uh, it sort of prescribes the different um, templates that you're allowed to send, and then you fill it up with the appropriate data and send it and. Um, and as long as you're thinking about the documents as documents and, and you treat them as like an entire XML document, uh, they're reasonably easy to work with. But wow, if you have to get into the XML and find specific data or heaven forbid you want to map every field that, that was sent, it's drudgery to, to get into those uh, XML structures and, and pull the data out. It's, um, it's, it's not something that, uh, that, that you do for fun. Uh, so I think Fire has that advantage too of being a little bit easier to work with as an interface analyst. Well, I think Fire, when you think about why Graham Greve created it originally, it's almost like it was designed for a, a very different type of interoperability. It, it was really meant for I want to build an application or an interface that consumes resources from a system, and I don't want to really have to worry about the canonical structures of that system. I want to I want to be able to do a quick query, say, give me this information about the lab results for John Doe, 
because I want to do this clinical display or I want to do this thing. Um, and I think what happened was people realized just how useful that canonical normalization was. And I also think, frankly, it was fueled by the disappointment with the HL7 version three and, and the RIM model activity that we've been toiling over in healthcare for, you know, a number of years and really not advancing that at all. I mean, there a lot of people were talking about it, the standard, there was a lot of debate about the standard. I don't know how much you got involved in that. I was peripherally involved in it, but it was just one of those things where people just did not want to execute on it. And then fire came out of nowhere almost as something that just was very, um, in, initially it was very simple. It was very clean. Um, it, uh, it, it leveraged a, a nice structured way of communicating. And I kind of feel that's why it took off. And, and one of my fears is, is that sometimes people say, take something good and they try to use it for something that it's not intended for. And it ends up uh, being a bit of a struggle. Your, your history is exactly right. I think um, version three, uh, the, the way I perceive it is they tried to model all of healthcare so that no matter what you wanted to do, there was a, a home for it. And that turned out to be an insurmountable task. The standard almost collapsed under its own weight. And what we were left with is the CCDA format, which is the, the part of V3 that survived. And, and it's still complicated. Um, and, and FIRE, I think you're right, FIRE was in part a response to, uh, to that. So everything that they did in V3, they did the opposite in FIRE. Um, thinking that if V3 was a big failure, that, that the opposite must be a big success. And they turned out to be largely, largely correct. Um, I think where you're right is that it can be um, overloaded uh, with, uh, with jobs to do. And the danger of that is um, fire, I think by intention is built around the same standards that everyone uses to build other web solutions, other API solutions. Uh, Fire uses REST-based API calls, which that's what everybody uses. So it will attract um, it, it will attract developers from outside of healthcare um, because it's familiar. And um, the advantage of being inside of healthcare is is really not knowing these arcane formats uh, from the '90s. The, the value of healthcare is knowing what's going on in the workflows and the, the data schemes and like understanding the business of healthcare to such an extent that you can build proper interfaces. And, you know, we see that from time to time of, you know, you try to apply the Silicon Valley startup model to healthcare and it fails because it's a different business. It's, it's qualitatively different from other businesses and you can't, use the same tactics. And uh, I, I think your concern is justified in that respect, that if um, healthcare outsiders uh, come in and try to um, try to build healthcare solutions on fire without understanding the business first, then they could um, they, they could have some some trouble. And um, and it's not to be, you know, exclusive or protective of our domain, uh, but just to like caution newcomers that it it is a different industry from others, and you need to spend some time understanding it in order to uh, to work productively here. Well, and that's I think that speaks to one of the things I always tell people when I'm when I'm working with a client or I'm I'm out there talking to people in the industry. 
you know, I've been in healthcare for almost 35 years. And, you know, I've, I've worked in other industries, not as long as healthcare, obviously, because I'm not 100 years old. But um, healthcare is different because it's one of those industries where it doesn't evolve from the center. It evolves from the edges. The healthcare is constantly reinventing itself from the edges. And I think every attempt we make to control it or standardize it or do things from the center without having the flexibility to let the edges kind of inform us, um, it, it's kind of, it kind of resists that. And when people try to do that, I think ultimately they fail. One of the nice things about fire and the way fire came about was it was pragmatic. It was, it was very straightforward and very pragmatic. And, um, and that's where I think when I, when I look at HL7V3, I think you're right. What they tried to do is say, well, this is how healthcare works. And that would work if we were an industry that kind of evolved from its, from its center um, based upon, you know, some ideology. But in reality, healthcare is constantly shifting and changing because the people on the front lines, you know, are practicing medicine. They're not just, you know, executing, you know, instructions. So I think it's a very different industry compared to a lot of the other things we see. Yeah, it has um, a lot of specific regulations. Uh, it has a lot of big established players that, um, you know, they bring competitive forces to to the industry that, um, you know, they, they have the things that they do well that they want to protect. And at the same time, they want to attack the other parts of the industry because those are also big. Uh, so you get a lot of, uh, <laughs> I'll call them sneak attacks, right? You, you'll, you'll get... Um, uh, a payer trying to do a project that solves a clinical problem because it's going to lower their their costs, but maybe it takes over a piece of what has traditionally belonged to providers and and vice versa. You know, they, they all do it to each other. And so you end up with a lot of um, interesting innovations that, um, that that happen all over the place all the time and and both drive and slow down uh, the progress of the technology and the standards. Well, I think you're, I think you're absolutely right. I think that, um, you know, historically in our industry, a lot of what we did was track activities. Um, a, a lot of the terminologies we work with, a lot of the things we do were really built to track transactions in healthcare. I think that um, more recently, because I always struggle with people when I would talk to people about data quality and why the quality and the interoperability is really important. And sometimes people struggle to understand that. And I think a lot of it was because traditionally we track transactions in healthcare and schedules. <clears throat> and I think COVID and our shift to value-based care um, shine a big spotlight on the data and what we can tell from the data. Because if all of a sudden I'm at risk or I'm trying to figure out what's happening with folks or, or why certain people are, are succumbing to COVID and others aren't, you know, if we have good data, it's invaluable to, to help me make good decisions about what's going on. And I think that is, um, I'm seeing a, a lot of uh, activity, a lot of trends moving in the direction of people kind of waking up about why they need good quality data, why they need to understand what's happening across their organization and at other organizations with, with the, the patients that they share responsibility for. It makes me feel kind of optimistic about where we're going from a, as an industry. 
You know, the coronavirus vaccine is both sides of that coin. It's like the the, the highest, uh, most amazing achievement of interoperability and at the same time, the worst failure because, um, I mean, the industry developed a vaccine in whatever it was, 15 or 18 months. And some of them, uh, some of the companies at least did it without ever having a sample of the virus. They, they sequenced the virus's um, RNA and that's all they needed to build an mRNA uh, vaccine. So on that side of it, it's like a technological miracle that we're in a place where we can develop vaccinations for a virus that that the medicine, the vaccine maker has never even like had in their in their possession. Uh, so that's, that's the good side of it. Uh, but our vaccination records are on paper and you have to keep track of this little card and have your your uh, doctor fill out the date that he gave you the, the shot and the, the lot number and everything. Uh, why isn't that interoperable? Uh, it's 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 like both extremes of the interoperability um, landscape in in a single event. Well, it's 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 uh, when you look at that the latter example. When when we look at our healthcare data, I think that's one of the things that that I as a patient or as a consumer struggle with. You know, I've got this rectangle in my pocket that can tell me the you know down to the minute the best route to get me from here to New Jersey, but at the same time. I can't seem to get my lab results, you know, <laughs> in a meaningful way. And so I'm, it's, it is one of those things where we do have such amazing capabilities to share information, but the, these barriers we have in healthcare, it, it is it is a little frustrating. I, I don't. I, I think that it's one of those things where it'd be nice if, you know, we could we could nail some of these things around semantic interoperability, syntactic interoperability drop some of these barriers, improve how we share things. Um, because it'd be pretty slick if you could look at your phone and see all your up-to-date information, know whether or not you're eligible for a clinical trial, you know, know that the, the medication you're on, you know, maybe there's a better opportunity for you or a better option for you. It just seems like there's so much we should be able to do um, if we if we could just kind of nail down some of these issues we have with with sharing and improving the quality of our data. But, you know, like you, I've been around long enough to know that it's not that simple. It's not just as simple as if we could apply this technology, if we could do this thing over here, that it would magically fix the problem. There's a lot of moving parts in healthcare. Yeah, we're, we're starting. I mean, um, I've been experimenting with Apple Health. And for me, I'm able to download my entire medical record. But that's only because um, I get all my health care from the same institution. And it happens to be connected to Apple Health. Um, and it's pretty nice. But um, it is just all the facts sort of parsed out into an easy to read way. It doesn't apply any insights like hey, you're eligible for a clinical trial or you're overdue for a, a procedure. I mean, all of that still has to come from the doctor. It's it's not um, part of the app yet, but but we have the first step, which is um, <laughs> at least in some special cases for, for people who are fortunate to have uh, all their health care at a single provider that's connected to Apple Health, you, you can at least get the data onto your uh, onto your phone. That's true. That's very true. So before we sign off, any uh, any interoperability stories? Any fun stories you want to share 
the folks at home? Uh, I was thinking uh, this morning about about something, and maybe this is a big question. It's a topic for its own podcast, but it's more in your area of expertise, which is, um, I think when when I think about code sets that are in use in healthcare, the the participants in the healthcare solution are not using different code sets uh, because they don't want other participants to not understand what they're saying. Uh, they're they're doing it because they've chosen the code set that is optimized for their business use cases. Payers use ICD codes to to represent diagnoses. Uh, researchers might use SNOMED. Uh, laboratories use LOINC codes to, to report results. Um, and in some ways, you know, these are all translatable to one another. In other ways, it's it's a very difficult task to translate, um, you know, a LOINC code to a SNOMED code. And it's because, um, you know, the, the way that they are describing the real world is coming at it from a different point of view. And it seems like that translation process isn't just um, like a dictionary translation or, or, or a code crosswalk. It really is having to understand both points of view, you know, both the laboratory's point of view and the researcher's point of view. And then the interface that you build to make that translation is uh, really kind of a business solution of, you know, how do I translate the operational lab data into research data, which seems like a heavy lift for an integration engineer. Um, and I, this occurred to me this morning when I was, when I was preparing for, for today's podcast. And um, I just, I, I thought I'd bring it up and see what your take was on that. Is that off base? Is it a crazy thought to have or, or, or is it is it the case that we're we're actually asking interface engineers to solve these complicated clinical and business problems? Well, Drew, I think you're completely mad. Um, <laughs> I'm going to terminate. No, the uh, <laughs> I think you're. It's interesting because I've spent a lot of time uh, looking at SNOMED, LOINC, ArchNorm, ICD-10, ICD-9, and you're absolutely correct. The the uh, like ICD-9 and 10 are classifications. SNOMED is a clinical terminology. Um, Loink is is hyper granular when it comes to you know there are 812 uh, codes for glucose in Loink, so they what I always tell people is a terminology was built for a purpose and it has an editorial policy, and if you try to go from one to the other, there's a certain amount of um, I call it editorial impedance where you know they're not exactly the same. We try to cope with that in our products through this thing called the cognition engine, which takes a term and breaks it down um, semantically just so that it, it exists in an information model. One of, the, one of the most challenging areas where people struggle is like allergy classes, because I can say an allergy class, but the knowledge of what I mean by that word is, is it's not semantically rich. I could call drugs Charlie doesn't like, and that could have 15 drugs in it. And the person trying to map that is like, well, I better get Charlie on the phone and find out exactly what drugs these are because you can't semantically, you know, transition from, you know, one Charlie to another Charlie. The, the thing that we struggle with even more than that, though, is that a lot of systems still today use proprietary codes where somebody, when they were setting up the system, sat down and said, these are the drugs, these are the labs. And they tend to be like, for example, with with labs. When people name labs in a proprietary code system, they tend to not worry about the method and all these other things unless they're relevant to how the clinician is going to interpret 
the result. So when they go to map that to Moink, they start out with a code called glucose serum, and it's got a result unit of you know nanograms per deciliter, <clears throat> and then they have 812 link codes to choose from. You know, you you run the risk of them <clears throat> mapping it without really a full contextual understanding of the target. And then if you have a, a bunch of different people mapping a code called glucose serum to LOINC, the very same person can map to a different LOINC code on a different day, just because you know they didn't have their coffee that day. So I think you're right. I think that um, what we try to do when we're dealing with semantic interoperability is look for semantic consistency and try to understand when the information that's missing um, when you're going from A to B, uh, when it's relevant, what really has to happen is somebody has to pick up the phone to say, I, my target is very specific and I don't know enough based upon what you sent me to be able to pick something that I feel confident in if it's going to be part of, you know, some kind of clinical reasoning. Um, but I, I think that, you know, we've made really good strides in creating things that help reduce that because in the old days, you know, the way you dealt with that was it wasn't necessarily an interface. You know, I would never put that on somebody who doesn't have the clinical experience. So what you end up with is this, you know, sweatshop of clinical people that are toiling away, mapping acetaminophen to acetaminophen. And that's no fun. Not why they went to medical school. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, you're right. Exactly. Because I mean, there's also cases where you don't really care. Yeah, I don't care which glucose it was. I just care that this patient is getting tested regularly because I put them on a, a diet management plan. Um, so, you know, th there are cases where the nuance uh, that's built into those those 800 codes doesn't matter. But you can't make that assumption that the user doesn't care because it could equally be important that it's an endocrinologist who actually does care uh, about the exact way that the, the sample was collected. So uh, you kind of have to do the job for the most strictest used case and hope that, uh, that that's satisfactory for uh, all the others that are less strict. Well, but there's actual an interesting, um, uh, what am I, what's the word I'm looking for? There's another, another version of that story, which is sometimes going exact. Like imagine if I've got a bunch of lab results and they have a certain amount of granularity and I'm mapping it to LOINC and I map it perfectly to LOINC. But the person who's receiving the data wants to look at trends in the data over time. They have to have the ability, and we tend to do that with value sets, but they have to have the ability to line that data up. And if everything is mapped to a, a hyper-specific, even though it might not be clinically relevant, LOINC code, I, I can't really use that data to look for the kind of trends unless I have a mechanism for, for broadening that information. And the same thing is true <clears throat> when you look at people's clinical records, you know, we have value sets because we have to periodically go in and roll things up so we can kind of create a, a clinical summary instead of having 28 different codes for diabetes. I just want to know that the patient has type two diabetes mellitus. And we tend to do that after the fact with, with value sets to roll things up. But um, it is interesting. And it's one of the things that we run into when we help clients with mapping. They're like, well, why isn't there just a big map in the sky? 
Uh, or why can't you just have a room full of people somewhere else doing this for me? And it's like, well, because what you want to do with the data matters. Because I've had people that go through and they build a map and they haven't really thought it out ahead of time. And they end up having to do it again because they didn't really sit down and think about what is what is the purpose of why I'm mapping and, and what should I be mapping to? They just map because they think they're supposed to map. And, and that, that doesn't always end well. Yeah, and that's sort of the perfect example of what happens when a non-healthcare developer comes into healthcare and, and starts starts building API-based integrations. They see a field that says diagnosis or uh, or, or uh, procedure code, and they just map it into the the one with the same name on on, on their side and uh, doing it naively like that, or or not being able to do it, and then asking that question: Why isn't there a dictionary in the sky that I could consult? Um, these, these are the types of questions that um, can turn out to be showstoppers for, um, for, for those who are new to the healthcare space. So here's a fun story. Years ago, I worked for First Data Bank and First Data Bank has terminologies for drugs. They have, and they have a, in their allergy suite, they have ingredients, multi-ingredient products, allergy craft classes and cross sensitivity groups. And I was working with a company that did the emergency room software, and they were working with a, a group of developers that were contractors. They, they were not healthcare. They had no healthcare experience. And I was meeting with them, and they said, hey, you don't have an interface, an API that brings me back a list of all the cross-sensitivity codes. And I said, well, I said, yeah, uh, we don't. I said, because... A cross-sensitivity is, is part of the algorithm for checking to see if you have an allergy in a cross-sensitivity situation. And they said, well, we really want an API to get us all the cross-sensitivity codes. And I'm like, well, why do you want that? They said, well, because it's the, sh it's the shortest list, and we want that to be the pick list when people are selecting allergies. <laughs> and I said, no, you can't do that. That's crazy talk. I mean, just because it's the shortest list, but they were... They were so focused on the interface and trying to simplify the interface with no understanding of how the underlying data was meant to function. And I, I just wonder how many times those things squeak out the door um, before people realize, wow, that's totally inappropriate. We shouldn't have done that. In my experience, they, 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 they don't squeak out the door. They march proudly out the door, but, but they get sent, sent right back home when the doctor sees it because, um, you know, in this case, the users are highly trained people who, who care about these things, and, uh, and and they'll look at that and and you know they'll send it right back. And uh, so so that that's how, sort of our safety net is that we have um, smart users, even even in cases where we don't have smart developers. No, I think that's true. I think that's very true, and they're very passionate too. It's one of the great things about. Yeah. It's one of the reasons why I love healthcare. The the users, the the, po the people that are delivering care to patients are very passionate. And if, if uh, you know, my first healthcare job, I hate to admit this, but I was working in a hospital lab and I had an emergency room doc come, come in and yell at me and really impress upon me that, hey, if we don't get these results, if these things don't make it out the door, um, people are going to get hurt. And uh, it's, it's one of the things that I kind of remind everybody that works for me is that you know, we're not just building software to move widgets around or, or to make sure, you know, people get paid for things. We're, we're really doing something that ultimately, you know, helps people. And uh, it's one of the other really cool things about, about being in this healthcare space that I, I appreciate every day.
Yeah, me too. That's why I'm here, right? I, I bounced around between jobs in a few industries before I quite accidentally got into healthcare IT and thought, you know, <laughs> I, I could make the next video game. I could make um, the next Angry Birds and become rich. But, you know, in 40 years, if we don't have a healthcare system because it's all collapsed around us, then people are going to ask me what I was doing uh, when I could have been avoiding that. So if there's a reason to be in this space, it's because, you know, it's it's something that everybody needs and is in a lot of ways badly broken and needs the attention of smart engineers to help help fix it. Yeah, and you've also got to be patient with the fact that healthcare, you know, we've been more disruptive in the last, you know, 10 years, but healthcare is, is does not, it, it resists change just because of the critical nature of what we're doing. It's, it's not something you can just pivot on a dime. Um, and so you, you, you have to be patient um, uh, to a certain degree. But Hey, Drew, I really appreciate you taking the time. Um, anything else you want to share? No, thanks. This has been great. I loved it. Me too. And, and uh, you know, we've just started working with you guys, but I got to tell you, clinical architecture um, we've really enjoyed the, the spirit of partnership with Lineate, and we're really looking forward to continuing to work with you guys going forward. So thanks again for today. And uh, thank you, everybody, for, for tuning in and listening to the InfraMonster podcast. I'm Charlie Harp with Drew Ivan. Thank you very much and have a great one.